Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. So you guys came on the podcast about a year ago. It was um, a couple weeks after the Dobbs decision, and it was a pretty dark conversation that we had. I mean, you guys were basically just anticipating all of the awful things that were sort of going to come of the ruling. And so I'm wondering if, you know, now that we're a year out, if you could just um, sort of give an overview of what has happened in the past year. I think that everything that we talked about has happened. Ordinary care for pregnancy has been severely endangered in every red state. This is New Yorker staff writer Gia Tolentino. She's a critic and journalist who's been writing about abortion for more than a decade. We see these stories in the news, right, of women that were forced to deliver babies that were non-viable, to carry fetuses that they knew would die soon after delivery. You know, these stories happen over and over again. And for every story that we see, there's so many that don't reach the news. We now have 14 states in the country where abortion is completely banned, right? Everywhere from North Dakota to Texas, West Virginia to Idaho. And this is New Yorker staff writer Stephanie Taladrid. She joined Gia and me in the studio right after she got back from a reporting trip to Texas. And that means a couple of things. It means that abortions are still happening. They may not be happening in those states. And if they are, there are a number of underground networks that women have been able to tap into to seek abortion care. My colleagues Stephania and Gia have written so many stories about how the country has changed since the Dobbs decision last year. Stories about how the decision is playing out politically and stories of its effects on the lives of women and their families. I asked them to come share some of what they've been seeing. Here's Gia. We've seen a variety of arcane and incredibly cruel legal strategies being attempted in state after state. I mean, at one point, there was a South Carolina bill proposed that would allow the death penalty for women that sought abortions. Legislators pulled out of supporting that for obvious reasons. There have been all these very creative, um, you know, there's a lawsuit in Texas crafted by the guy that architected the bounty law. It's the case of Marcus Silva, who found abortion pills in his girlfriend's purse and then is suing her friends who helped her get them for um, a wrongful death lawsuit. Like, you know, lots of wild, really, really awful strategies. And then at the same time, we have had, to me, stunning legislative electoral victories for the protection of reproductive rights. You know, I think the biggest shock in the midterms for a lot of us was what happened in Kentucky, you know, an extremely red state, an extremely conservative state. You know, this ballot initiative that stopped a total abortion ban, you know, that that was in favor of reproductive rights. Michigan, in the midterms, Gretchen Whitmer, she positioned abortion as just this common sense right that had to be affirmatively protected for the economic health of the state. And we saw what happened there. Like, they flipped both houses, right? And I kind of see it as um, Democrats are slowly, slowly, slowly catching on to the fact that they have to have a legislative ground game that is as ferocious as the conservative rights has been. Um, the country is becoming more pro-choice. 
in terms of the right to abortion, period, in terms of the right to abortion to the point of viability, the idea that abortion should be decided via ballot initiatives, you know, versus, you know, top-down legislation, like, everything is creeping significantly in favor of people wanting the power to make these decisions from themselves. And that I was not—I don't know what I was expecting there, but that, you know, I don't want to say that feels good, but it's encouraging at a time where there's a lot of discouraging news every day. Yeah, not necessarily expected. I mean, to me, what's most important here is that we're just seeing how far-reaching the implications of the overturning of Roe have been, right? Because— At the end of the day, immediately after the Supreme Court's decision, we were concerned about what about women who needed abortion care? How would they be able to access it? And we had also received uh, warnings from academic experts, doctors, uh, even The Lancet, before uh, the Supreme Court's decision was announced, came out and said, women will die if Roe is overturned. Right. Because we cannot afford to forget that we already live in a country that has one of the highest rates of maternal deaths among developed nations. Right. That women in the U.S. are three times more likely to die than women in France, in the U.K., in Germany. Right. And so if on top of that, we now have all of these restrictions come into place in 14 states, then what will that mean for women with ectopic pregnancies? What, what will that mean for women with uh, pre-viable ruptures of membranes? And what has it meant so far? I mean, you've done a lot of reporting at looking at doctors and hospitals and how they're handling the current situation. I mean, what have you found in terms of what sort of care doctors are able to provide in some of the more restrictive states? It, it's been utter chaos. And, and one of the reasons for that is that Texas, along with other states that have banned abortions, not only have several laws regulating the practice, but several exceptions within those laws, right? So in Texas, we have SB8, which we already talked about. Uh, We have a pre-row ban, which dates back to the 1800s. And we have a trigger law that went into effect shortly after the Supreme Court's decision. So doctors now in Texas are in a situation where whenever a pregnant woman comes in, they need to balance that person's health and their livelihood against their own. There's a doctor in Houston who told me about a woman who came in. She had had three C-sections in the past, and her OBGYN had warned her that um, a fourth pregnancy would be lethal. And she literally told the doctor, I don't know what to do. I have three children. I cannot die. But the doctor didn't know what to do either because SB8 has a provision that allows any individual to sue someone who is aiding or abetting an abortion. If they violate those laws, they risk losing their licenses, they risk spending their entire lives in prison, and on top of that, you know, facing really, really steep fines. And so what you saw was that immediately after Roe fell, doctors were in a position where before they could treat pregnant women, they had to consult with their lawyers, hospital administrators, ethical boards to figure out how to proceed. Basically, what we have is doctors don't really know how to treat patients in those situations, but they also don't quite know what to say to those patients, right? In the piece that you mentioned, we interviewed 12 doctors, some of whom told me that they've been talking about the weather in Colorado just as a way to indirectly suggest to the woman that um, they can seek care there. 
Have, have you guys found or heard a lot of stories of sort of like bad actors taking advantage of the current chaos and, and confusion? Like I've been wondering about people selling fake abortion pills. Yeah. Um, or, you, you know, you mentioned the, the husband who tried to sue his wife's friends in Texas, just people who, yeah, are kind of taking advantage of the fact that people are vulnerable and desperate. Um, I want to bring up the example of a woman that we actually talked about uh, the last time we met. Uh, she was at the clinic in Houston where I covered the overturning of Roe from. A piece that just got picked as Pulitzer Final <laughs> I'm glad you said it. Yeah, I was about to. <laughs> so Thank cool. Thank you. And, um, and so she was in the waiting room when the ruling was announced, and she was completely confused because even as the staff at the clinic were explaining – Ladies' abortion uh, is now illegal. There's nothing we can do to help you in the state of Texas. She didn't even know what Roe v. Wade was, didn't know where to turn to. And one of her friends had told her, if things don't work out at the clinic, you can always reach this man. And this was a Mexican man who had helped her friend uh, access abortion pills. And so when she left the clinic that day, she immediately called the man. And he said, you know, I can offer abortion pills for $160. Then he raised the price to 200, eventually to 260. And this woman, who already had three children to take care of, could not afford to have a fourth, decided to go with that, right? I met with her in Houston about a month after she took the pills. And she explained that this man, who clearly wasn't a doctor, had come into her house, taken out some pills from his bag. She didn't even know what they were, didn't know if it was misoprostol, mifepristone, uh, what the dosage was. Uh, he offered to insert them in her vagina. She said no. Uh, but she had a series of complications that are not normal for someone who has an abortion during the sixth week of pregnancy, right? And I'm sure there are many more women in her situation these days. But in my own reporting, this is the only instance that I know of. And luckily, we've seen a group of women in the U.S., but also in other places, in Mexico, in Europe, through efforts like Aid Axis and a group called Les Libres in Mexico, organize and make sure that women who are in this person's situation have been able to access abortion pills via mail and have had access to the information that they require in order to know, you know, what to take and, and, and what to expect after taking those pills. What I have seen and what I have been hearing is in terms of what's happening at the ground level, it's kind of extraordinary dedication of people, mostly women, helping each other, you know, get through these things safely. The problem is getting through these things safely is then being criminalized, yeah. right? But but in terms of the process of procurement and taking, taking this medication, um, people are trying to help each other. It's not, you know, we're never going back to coat hangers. It is with these pills, and of course, these pills are tied up in all sorts of conflict, and we can talk later about one strategy that is rapidly advancing is the idea of using the Comstock laws to kind of prevent all abortion pills or any equipment that could be used in abortion to be mailed anywhere in the United States. I mean, it's a, it's a very far-flung strategy based on a set of laws that were, you know, created before women could vote, long before yeah. women could vote, but people are trying to advance it. But it's, you know, these pills are safe. Like, there are complications, and everyone deserves to be in a state where they can be managed openly. But there are 
You know, one example of this that I think about, I think like r slash abortion, the abortion subreddit is actively and pretty professionally managed by a group of women called the Online Abortion Resource Squad who are kind of there to serve as like concierges to just help people manage these events. And it returns abortion to what it traditionally always was, which was the the line— that it should be between a woman and her doctor gets thrown around a lot. But I'm like, it doesn't have to be between a woman and anyone. Yeah. I was reading that it was actually during the pandemic when a lot of sort of like healthcare went online that women who usually would have gone to the doctor and, you know, been given abortion pills and then you, you take one there, you know, they're just doing it all at home and getting it sent to their home. Is that was yeah, this sort of during it, the pandemic that we realized that this is something that you can do at home and it's perfectly safe? Well, thanks to the pandemic and the instantly widened approval that the FDA had to give for telehealth prescription, that certainly has been a boon to people seeking abortions. But there's a ban in North Carolina, the 12-week ban, that is not active yet but has been passed, I believe. And then this ban is being pitched as like a very common sense, like most abortions happen before 12 weeks anyway. So this is just, you know, it's being positioned as a moderate solution. One of the things that it does is you have to appear in person, I want to say three times before taking these pills. Like people are trying to reinstate these requirements that people be seen in person to take pills that are are normally extremely safe. And to your question, Tyler, I think it's also important in the context in which we're seeing, you know, such a historic reversal in women's rights in the States to look at other countries that have been in a similar situation. And that's why I brought up Mexico, right? um, And and what's so interesting about Mexico is that around the time that SB8, the six-week ban, was passed in Texas, the Supreme Court in the country decided to legalize abortion. And so at a time when uh, things were moving in a very different direction in the States, Uh, the the Mexican Supreme Court came out and said, you know, we are defending and upholding the rights of women. And misoprostol is widely available in Mexico. You know, it's much cheaper than it is here. Uh, It's easy to access. You can get it over the counter. And so what was really fascinating was that several activists, several Mexican activists started organizing uh, and contacting groups in the States to say, we've been in your situation, right? We know what it's like. And we've lived under these laws for the longest time. And for us, doctors have always been the gatekeepers. Uh, And what has been extraordinary is to see that their outreach efforts succeeded. There's now a growing movement of women on both sides of the border who are getting pills in the hands of women who need them most. Um, They're organizing in all sorts of creative ways, driving and crossing the southern border with pills in their trucks, uh, in their toiletry kits, flying to places like California, New York, and then mailing those medications to women. And it's just been extraordinary to see that these women have come together and said, we won't go back to a pre-1973 time. And I I pulled out Rebecca Traster's piece at The Cut from, you know, several months ago. What is it? Or, March, not that long ago. <laughs> every every month feels so long. Years ago. <laughs> but she, she talks about this you know, in Argentina and Colombia as well. And um, she wrote at one point that reproductive rights activists there have leaned especially hard on the idea that abortion should just simply not be regulated through the criminal code. Mm-hmm. Like One of the most insidious things about the last year is that the framework of, I think there's 20% of the United States population thinks that abortion should be legal in all circumstances, right? I place myself in that camp unconditionally. But the, like, Overton window is 
hewing to the rules of the right-wing extreme. And it's really hard, you know, when these are the legislative structures that are closing in on much of the country, it's hard not to think within these frameworks. I'm from Texas, right? I know the way that the the right has succeeded in this implicit frame. It's this very wages of sin is death frame, that the mm-hmm. wages of sex is pregnancy even if it kills you, you know, even if you have to carry a dying fetus for 20 weeks, you know, and 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 disable yourself giving birth. Like, there's this, you know, incredibly punitive framing of this that is making plenty of people that I know who have kind of moderate-ish politics feel like if they have to leave the state to do something and they could get in trouble for doing it in Texas, then, you know, if half the country thinks it's wrong, then maybe it is more wrong than I thought. You know, it's shaping like these most intimate currents of emotional instinct in a way that I find really terrifying. But that's why these countries provide such an example of hope, because they're like refusing that frame altogether. It's like, Mm -hmm. why would you ever regulate abortion Mm -hmm. through the criminal code rather than the medical code, right? Mm -hmm. What reason is there to ever punish anyone for doing this? Um, You know, other countries like, like Ireland, South Korea, like the work that they've had to do to come back from the ultra-religious frameworks totally. that we are now stepping into yeah. is is very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. I mean, you can even say something similar with, um, like, abortion pills and how um, it's like the courts are getting involved with the pills. Like, the FDA has approved these drugs, and then there was a Trump-appointed judge that tried to revoke the FDA's approval, right, and, and right. the Supreme Court blocked that decision. But just the idea that um, I think that was the first time the courts have gotten involved in, like, what medication the FDA, like, can or cannot right. approve. It seems like it would set a weird precedent just in general. Yeah, I mean, it's all, like, even the fact that they said the word Comstock laws, you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. And, and, the, and the idea that Idaho is criminalizing interstate travel, you know, for the purpose of getting an abortion. I mean, this is really, really, really bleak. Is there not just a way to, like, legally define— I mean, maybe there's not an incentive to do this, but you could see a world in which Texas or another state could just legally define abortion as, like, a— a voluntary end of a pregnancy, you know, for reasons aside from the mother's condition. You know, like, that doesn't seem like a, you know, abortion in the way that conservatives talk about it, at least. But I think this is one of the reasons that the country is becoming more pro-choice, pro-abortion, is that there's actually no way to do that. So many people have been realizing, women in particular, who might have considered themselves anti-abortion, that abortion is part of reproductive care. People who want and need to end their pregnancies, there's a galaxy of reasons, a galaxy of complications. The question of what a person wants and what they need and why they want it and how much is medical and how much is economic and how much is psychological and how much is, you know, spiritual, like it's literally impossible to kind of carve black and white roads out of that via statute, Um, even though people are trying, like in that um, purportedly moderate North Carolina bill. And this is something that I read in Jessica Valenti. She has like an abortion everyday newsletter that is a really good compendium of resources. But the risk to a woman's life cannot be from suicidal ideation, um, which is is extraordinarily Mm. cruel, right? That, you know, abortions are allowed if it's a medical risk, but the medical risk can't be— It can't be mental health. It can't be mental health. And I, I don't think it really would be possible to delineate that speech in that way. Absolutely not. And, and you know, the problem here is that the people who are writing these laws have no medical experience, no medical training, right? And so, for instance, I mean, I have the, the language of the law in front of me. Uh, for the trigger ban, 
it permits abortion only for the purposes of saving the life of the mother. The trigger law declared that performing an abortion when a woman is not at risk of death or threatened with, quote, a substantial impairment of a major bodily function, uh, end of quote, is punishable by up to life in prison, right? And so what doctors have been left trying to figure out is what does that even mean, right? And how at risk must the lives of the women that I'm treating be before I can intervene and not be thrown in jail for that, right? And so in the case of the doctor that I was just talking about, eventually the doctor decided to jot down the names of a few clinics and handed the paper to the woman and said, this conversation never happened. Coming up, Gia Tolentino and Stephanie Taladrid on the state of grassroots abortion organizing. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. The tricky part here is that we're not going to know what the real human toll of these bans has been for a long time. You know, Texas has a maternal mortality and morbidity report uh, and a committee that is in charge of that report. They just issued their latest statistics, which were based on numbers from 2019. So that means that essentially we're going to be getting the numbers from 2022 in 2025. You know, hearing you talk about that, and this is something that I always end up thinking about, the the idea that the life of the mother or the life of the person who is pregnant, like, all of these things, we're defining it literally as their ability to keep breathing. Yeah. And that is a fraction of what it means to constitute a full life, right? It's it's a definition of the life of the pregnant person that has nothing to do with liberty and flourishing and autonomy and pleasure and decision-making, like, it's literally like, can you hang on to your physical functioning? Yeah. And and the reduction of what women's lives mean to that, it'll just be kind of pushed into this is what it means to be a woman, you know, for in, in a lot of places, it'll be pushed like and, that. And more than that, I think that it forces us to grapple with the question, which is something that a doctor raised, which is, you know, whose lives do we value here? And up to what point? And even if your goal is to support pregnancies. I mean, it seems like pregnancy in general has just become more dangerous because obviously there are complications that can't always be foreseen. And if doctors are in a position where they can't do what's necessary in order to keep the the mother safe, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, just... Every, every pregnancy, every delivery comes with the risk of permanent disability and death, yeah. you know, like not to mention, I mean, I was just complaining to my friends earlier this week, like when I was pregnant and gave birth to my daughter Paloma, I... Just this little thing that I developed seasonal allergies that I'll probably have for the rest of my life. Like mm. if, if men could, you know what I mean? If, if men had sex and then sometimes ended up with seasonal allergies for the rest <laughs> of their life, like we'd have abortion M&Ms, you know? It's, um, I, I keep thinking with all these cases when it's like framed by the media as a tragic story, which it is when, you know, someone gets a diagnosis of trisomy 18 and, you know, they, they have to deliver a stillborn baby at 38 weeks. Or, you know, there was this kind of horrific case where um, a woman had like part of the baby's skull was missing. She still had to deliver. She still had to deliver because their abortion was 
illegal in because that the baby had because the, you... the fetus had a heartbeat, right? Yeah, um, it just would never ever survive outside the womb. And this is not this is the law working exactly as intended. These aren't like edge cases that mm-hmm, are mm-hmm, that are kind mm-hmm. of shading the law tragically. Like this is exactly exactly the the point. I mean, and again, it just stems back to this Virgin Mary thing. The only woman that has ever been venerated within Christian religion was someone that accepted a pregnancy that came out of nowhere and delivered the savior of our world, right? It's this valorization of pregnancy at all costs, no matter the consequence. And the woman is necessarily sacrificial. Like, it's it's as intended. Um, and, and one thing that I—this is another thing that I had read in Jessica's uh, newsletter— There's also something happening with medical data in Texas and I bet in plenty of other states where Mm -hmm. these policies are actively generating misleading medical data. There's a list of 28 medical conditions that are listed in Texas law as abortion complications. And some of them are things like adverse reactions to anesthesia, infection generally, pelvic inflammatory disease, right? These things that are not necessarily at all associated with abortion. But if a doctor sees a patient who's reporting any of these complications, the doctor has to report that with the state as as wow. an abortion Pelvic inflammatory disease? Isn't that right. like you get enough UTIs that totally. can happen? I mean, and like infection? <laughs> like, are you kidding <laughs> yeah. me? And, um, and if a woman has had an abortion at any point in her life, it is reported as an abortion complication. What happens once you're part of this system of people who like have been reported for having abortion complications? This is not— It's like they just like keep their eyes on you? No, or? no, no, no. But this is ostensibly for the generation of medical data. I see. Uh, for the good of—, of pregnant women, right? Like it's it's not a it's not a state registry of people that have had abortions, although that but will, doctors you know, are now required right. to report anyone who has any kind of a complication with abortion. And that is actually something but, that and, and it can be like this. Like totally, it can be as loose totally, as this. Yeah. Totally. And and something that one of the doctors I interviewed mentioned. So five doctors actually confirmed that sepsis was on the rise in Texas. And a doctor actually mentioned that they were really worried about the fact that uh, women who had had an incomplete abortion were not being straightforward with doctors anymore. You know, so they would be coming in through the ER and and present the kinds of symptoms that you would normally associate with an incomplete abortion. And yet, because they were terrified about the laws, they would not openly tell the doctor, this is what happened to me. That doctor literally said, they do not trust me anymore. And then the doctor also said that they were seeing an increase in deaths in the second trimester because women coming in with pre-viable ruptures of membranes were being delayed care because there was still a heartbeat. That kind of anecdotal evidence is important. Even though we won't get to see the full data until the maternal mortality and morbidity report comes out for 2022, People are talking about these things, right? Um, and there was actually a doctor uh, from Parkland and Clements, two of the largest hospitals in Dallas, that conducted her own study on morbidity uh, in those two hospitals. And she was looking at how the conditions of 28 patients who had had pregnancy-related complications, including previable ruptures of membranes, um, had been treated since uh, SB8 had gone into effect. And what that doctor found was that Many of those patients had ended up in the ICU, that morbidity rates had practically doubled. Uh, One of them had required a hysterectomy. And guess what? In the cases of the fetuses, only one of them had survived. And that fetus had spent 128 days in the NICU, right? So again, 
whose lives are we valuing here? Do you think the fact that um, doctors are, you know, starting to kind of speak out about this or at least speak to, you know, reporters about this will actually um, – I guess I'm just thinking about how, like, clearly – women saying that this has, like, negatively affected their yeah. health hasn't done enough to, like, sway the the populace. But, like, you would think that healthcare professionals saying that, like, this has drastically reduced their ability to be able to care for people, whether they're, you know, seeking abortions or just trying to, like, have a baby. Um, you would think that that would be extremely compelling, even to the most far-right pro-life person. I would hope so. And I think that, you know, there's now a case in Texas five women uh, who experienced pregnancy-related complications to the state of Texas. And among the plaintiffs, there were two OBGYNs from Houston as well who stepped up and said, you know, enough, right? This is affecting our ability to treat women. Uh, and there's just so much confusion that some of our colleagues won't even dare say the word abortion anymore, right? They call it the A word now. And so... I think it's too early to say, but it has been wonderful to see that several doctors have come out and said, you know, enough, enough with this. Even though they do it on the record, it was up for, some of them do it on the record, some of them prefer to go off the record. But um, I think their voices are very much needed in this debate. And for a long time, one complaint that I heard from from women, from patients, from advocates was, where are the doctors? And they were, I think, silent for some time. But now what we're starting to see almost a year after the overturning of Roe is that they're willing to break that silence. Has there also been a lot of migration? Like I would assume that abortion doctors in Texas go to New Mexico where well, they can serve more people potentially, yeah. although there's yeah, obviously which is, leaving which people. is a huge problem. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, to, to offer a point of view that is less optimistic, there has been since the state level bans started being passed more than a decade ago, you know, as people were using things like clinic restrictions to kind of shut down maternal care in very you know in, especially in poor and rural areas there has been a drain of doctors you know like there's there so many rural areas in the United States that just don't have any maternity wards for hours yeah. you know let alone abortion care and so there has already before this been a movement of doctors away from places where it is difficult to practice and no one has really seemed to care about that because, as always, the people that are most affected are poor mm -hmm. and they're often minorities. And it's one of those things where it's not as if physicians have been wildly listened to over the past three years anyway in terms of their working conditions and their yeah. ability to care for patients and their staffing levels under COVID. And I have my eye on lawsuits like that, and I hope so many more doctors sue the state of Texas. But it also feels like this is one of those things where the people making the decisions, the legislators, as always, the women in their family will be able to get abortions and they will be able to get maternal care mm -hmm. because they will fly to the nearest big city and it will be fine. And the attrition that occurs everywhere else and the gaps in care is as long as legislators' families will be able to pay their way out of it, which they will indefinitely. Yeah. They don't care about the optics, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there is actually some data on this. The the Association of American Medical Colleges just uh, released a report saying that states that banned abortion have seen a drop in applications for OBGYN residencies. And as Gia pointed out, I mean, we're now in a situation in a place like Texas where half of the state's counties 
do not have a single specialist in women's health, right? No OBGYN, no nurse, no midwife who can treat mothers and their babies. And as one of the doctors in Parkland told me, you know, with this drop in, in applications and with a bigger number of doctors retiring as time goes by, if there are no OBGYNs left to treat women in Texas, that's when you'll really see maternal mortality go up, right? God. Um So where is the focus of abortion activism right now? What are the more, um, like, effective things that you've seen? And sort of where is the the focus? Which, I mean, it's hard because it seems like we're just going to have to solve this with— with legislation, but like I think that's where a lot of activism is focused. Um, You know, the New Yorker just published a great piece about Planned Parenthood. I think people are cottoning on to the reality that it is grassroots, deeply underfunded networks that are getting people the care they need. It is not necessarily Planned Parenthood clinics, although, you know, they help so many people, but everyone read that piece. (laughs) Um, But it, there has been a lot of activist movement in pushing sort of affirmative language about abortion and, you know, not treating it as, like, it's very unfortunate when someone has to get an abortion, but, you know, they have the right to choose that with their doctor. I think the messaging is changing, and the group that did a lot to to sway Kentucky is now working in Ohio. Um, in 2022, they worked the campaigns in Kansas and Kentucky And now they're coming to Ohio, which is a big anti-abortion state. And, you know, we'll see what happens in Ohio in the next couple of years. I think that the the strategy both of activists and, you know, then hopefully some Democrats taking their lead is to speak about abortion as a positive good, (laughs) not just a like it's a horrible tragedy when someone has to get one. Like this is this is part of freedom. And this is and this is something, again, that has been borrowed or not borrowed, but um, South American activists have done this really well as reclaiming the right to use the word life, to to reclaim abortion as a deeply pro-life act and something that is pro-family and pro-economy and pro-civic participation and pro-democracy. And that is just not a strategy that Democrats have ever had the courage to come out on a national level and implement. But I think we're seeing it work city by city, state by state, um, adopting this activist language that people have always pushed for. And I think we will continue to see that work. You know, this is one of those things where it's like we're never going to go back to the time pre-row. Like, it is my hope that we can stop mincing our words about it and talking about it as a vaguely tragic, you know, act. And it's like we can assume that women are— Women are competent enough to understand the emotional and spiritual complexity of it on their own. But on a, you know, on a large scale level, it's just an absolute civic good. And, yeah, I think we'll see more of that. Steph, have you also seen that sort of um, shift in how abortion is is talked about among the, the people who are part of these activist efforts? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily how they're talked about. You know, if we... Think of the of the group that I referred to at the beginning of the conversation who is working with Las Libres in Mexico. You know, these people are fearless, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, it comes from a philosophy that suggests that women who are fighting for their own rights are will eventually be on the right side of history, right? And that it is the state that is wrong here. And so I think that it's been perhaps informative for, for people in the states to look to Mexico and, and other countries in the region, learn from that activism, right? Um, because 
I think so many women in the States had come to take their rights for granted. And the idea that abortion could be banned was just unimaginable for them. I also think that one thing that I've been trying to kind of have a co regular conversations with myself about in, in terms of not accepting the frame put forward by the Dobbs decision is that what the GOP wants is for all of this suffering to seem ordinary. Mm. And there's so many stories every single day, you know, 12-year-olds that are, you know, having their right to an abortion blocked, right, because the can't get, like, a judicial approval to prove that it was rape or incest, right? Like, it's a slew of these. If you're paying attention, it's just story after story every single day. And it can be easy to go numb and to feel despairing, or for me at least it is, and to kind of accept that this is happening. And I think I have tried to stay cognizant of that, stay cognizant of how easy it is to kind of be like, well, this is our world now. And it is, but it's one of those things where take anyone in this country, if if their partner or they or someone that they loved was forced to go into sepsis in a parking lot before receiving medical care, like how mad would they be? And that's where I'm sort of like, I should have that flame alive in me at all times, and I shouldn't put it out for my own comfort, you know? And and that position, that an experience like that might be close at hand, this is the inevitable reality that is coming for people in red states. And I hope that there is still anger, you know? I, I hope that what the numbers reflect in terms of people becoming more and more in favor of abortion, I hope that there is the sense of this as a real burning injustice, not just a new reality, right? I I suspect that that is what is behind those changes and the vote in Kansas and the vote in Kentucky. And I, I hope that we don't I hope that we don't get used to it. It seems like there are two conflicting trajectories, though, where it's like as a whole, the country seems to be becoming more and more pro-choice. But then you have courts and red states enacting, you know, stricter. Right, it's like gun control. Yeah. So I guess the, <laughs> this incredibly popular policy will be completely blocked at the legislative level something like 30 percent of Republicans are still in favor of abortion rights, and it's maybe 80 percent of Democrats. But the thing is, there was so much talk around the Dobbs decision that it's like it's returning to the states. As it's playing out, we are seeing that something returning to the states does not mean that a democratic process comes into play right. as, at all. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, you know, if you consign women to forced birth, then the decision-making power will evermore be out of their hands at the legislative level. Yeah, I mean, the certain issues like gun control don't give great grounds for optimism about popular common sense policies becoming enshrined where they need to be. But just that, like, 6%, 10%, 15% movement in favor, um, you know, whichever polls you want to go by, that's huge for a year. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, and I remember um, the day that Roe was overturned, I was having a conversation with one of the employees at the clinic who— was just in complete disbelief. And she was telling me, what will it take for people to realize that this is fundamentally wrong, that we are hurting women? And she said, maybe when someone dies and the public knows about it, maybe that's when people will suddenly wake up to the idea that this is, this is fundamentally wrong. And I had recently covered Uvalde, so perhaps I was <laughs> a bit cynical at that point. But I kept thinking, you know, Children die all the time from gun right. violence. It doesn't seem to matter. The laws, there has been a little bit of reform, but the laws are fundamentally the same. 
And so it really begs the question, what will it take? And I don't think that any of us have the answer to that yet. Court packing. <laughs> Straight up, but whatever. <laughs> Gia Tolentino and Stephanie Taladrid are staff writers at The New Yorker. You can read their work on newyorker.com. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. If you've been enjoying the show, one of the best ways you can support it is by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find new listeners, and we read every review. The show is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.